Welcome to the Fantasy End, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's intro is a bit different because our guest is a talented composer as well as a fantastic author. He's graciously allowed us to feature his music in this episode. In this episode, I'm speaking with author Yoon Ha Lee. His latest standalone novel from Solaris takes place in a fantasy reimagining of Japan's occupation of Korea and follows a pacifist painter and a magical mecha dragon. Yoon and I discuss his experience with watercolor painting and animation, the important role of art and culture, and how colonization seeks to undermine and destroy that role. I had a wonderful time speaking with Yoon, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Yoon. It's so great to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And I have to admit that before we scheduled this interview, I had no idea that you were a musical composer. So how did that come about? Actually, I wanted, I got into music before I got into writing. I was always listening to my dad's, my dad raised me on classical music and country because we were living in Texas. And I would just sit there and listen to Tchaikovsky. And nobody tells you when you're six years old that normal people don't compose. Like, that's not one of the things they tell you. So I thought that obviously music exists, so it is something that I can learn to do. And when I started taking piano lessons, I would naturally... I guess kind of like writing fanfic, but for music, like if there was a piece that I enjoyed, I would mess around with it and change it and try to make it my own. And eventually I started writing my own pieces. Wow. So you were like writing your own musical pieces when you were six years old? Uh, More like eight years old, but yeah, because (laughs) it's like children naturally do what they're interested in. I was interested in music and nobody told me that I couldn't. So I went ahead and did it. I actually thought that everybody composed, they just didn't talk about it. And then when I grew older, I learned that was not the case. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I know, uh, I took piano lessons from a young age, but I don't think I ever had like the idea that composition is something I could actually try. I think it's kind of a shame because really it's just playing with music. Everybody knows what kind of music they do or don't like. And that's really the starting point is what do I like? What do I want this piece to sound like? Yeah. And I guess so uh, you've, uh, my understanding, you've continued your music hobby uh, for a while. So you still compose now? Yeah. um, Lately, I've been doing sort of neoclassical stuff. I experimented with electronica. This can be a very expensive hobby because sampled instruments that are based on uh, live orchestral instruments can become very expensive. But there are also very accessible ways to do it, which I like about modern technology. Uh, Back when I was writing orchestral music, in high school for music class, I used the music department's computer and the software was extremely expensive, very buggy. And now if you have, you know, GarageBand or um, what's that free one called? Audacity? Yes. Or just like a, a $10 app on your phone, you can create music. It 
it might not be orchestral music. It might not be exactly the kinds of things that you hear, you know, on the top 40 charts or in a movie score, but you can, you can make your own music of a sort. And I just really love that more people have the opportunity to engage in this. Absolutely. I think the software, I, I, took band in high school so i did noodle around a little bit then i think it was finale if i'm remembering that correctly yep but that might have been more for like actual sheet music than creating the electronic music Mm -hmm. and so in addition to writing and music to sort of complete your triple threat artist status i saw that you also draw so i did find your art station page with it looks like lots of drawings of your machineries of empire series so how do you manage your time to pursue all of these artistic hobbies my husband looked at this question when you sent it to me, and he's like, yeah, Yunha, how do you do it? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I actually don't spend that much time during my day writing. So I try to write 2,000 words a day, and I don't write every day. It's more like three to four days a week. I write 1,000 words per hour or per hour and a half. So that's two to three hours a day doing writing which leaves a lot of free time for other things. I could be writing more if I decided to, you know, spend four hours a day writing or five hours a day writing, but I I would really be miserable doing that because what feeds my writing is the ability to explore the world and create other things. Uh, for example, with the art, I like to draw illustrations of my characters because it helps me to visualize what they look like or get a sense of their personality. And um, I'm also one of those writers who, like, I type 100 words per minute. So you would think, theoretically, I could be churning out tons of words. But in reality, I need time to think over my plots and characters and really, you know, just sort of get to know them and figure out what I'm doing. So I I like to take it easy, I guess. Yeah, and I know from uh, the one writing attempt I've made so far... Uh, the actual physical typing speed is really not the limiting factor for the most part. It's everything else. No, it's how fast you think. It's like, I don't think at 100 words per minute. Uh, I used to write uh, longhand with a fountain pen, and people asked me, how can you stand writing so slowly? And I would tell them, well, that's about as fast as I think, so it really doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I know a few people who like writing longhand as well, and that's what I've heard. Well, sort of taking things back a little bit, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? It was Anne McCaffrey's Dragonflight from her Dragon Riders of Pern series. I had a friend who, in fourth grade, who really got into Anne McCaffrey's books because, I don't know, we were kids and kids like dragons. I guess everybody likes dragons. And so she got into McCaffrey's books and I decided that I wanted to try the book because my friend liked it. And uh, I hope it's okay to spoil a book that came out before I was born. (laughs) But Dragonflight has as a plot point uh, the fact that dragons can teleport and they can teleport not only between locations in space, but between times. So my mind was just completely blown because I had never conceived a of time travel being a thing. It was my first encounter with the trope. And after that, I was just hooked on science fiction and fantasy because it had these exciting ideas that I had never seen before. 
Right. I didn't discover uh, Anne McCaffrey's work until much later in life, only in the past couple of years. But in general, that was my same experience. Uh, just there's really no limit on what you can achieve in those genres. Yeah, it's the imaginative aspect that I find really attractive. Like, I do read in other genres from now and then, but I always come back to science fiction and fantasy because uh, just the sheer scope of imagination on display. Um, So is that sort of what made you want to become a writer as well, or how did that happen? That was actually due to my third grade teacher, Mr. McCracken, Basically, up until that point, I thought that books just sort of magically dropped out of the sky. Like, I didn't have any concept of where books came from or that they were written by authors, by human beings. But Mr. McCracken, once a week, he would get into this. Actually, I don't know where he got the costume. It was like the spandex Superman type costume. And he <laughs> that's amazing. Up. And he would call himself Story Man and he would teach us about creative writing. And that was when it dawned on me that actually books are written by people and I'm a person, so I could write a book too. And I that was really when I became determined to someday write a book. And so I find it interesting that as someone who, uh, as you said, all the way back in the third grade, kind of had the idea to write a book, uh, that you then went on to choose studying math and math education. So how did you choose that path? That's slightly convoluted. I entered college as a prospective history major because at the time I wanted to write fantasy, uh, you know, medieval fantasy. And I thought that history would be a good foundation for that. And then I sort of looked at the job market and went, wow, I really want to be able to eat and pay the rent. And a history degree seems like a really bad way to do that. So I switched to math because I enjoyed it. And it seemed like a more practical degree. I didn't want to do a doctorate because it would be seven years of just grinding work, not not really having the leisure to write. And I thought, well, you know, if I taught high school math, I would be working hard during the school year, but I would have the summers off to write. That was the original plan. So I guess, do you teach high school math then? Uh, No, I write full-time now. I actually did not last very long as a high school math teacher, partly because of health reasons. I had to leave the field. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Now is probably an especially difficult time to be in education as well. I have a lot of respect for teachers, what they're going through right now. It's quite an adjustment, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah, on the note of math, I saw in your author bio that it says you find it a continual delight that math can be mined for story ideas. And I think many people might have this idea that math is like this purely logical thing and writing is this purely creative thing. Uh, So how do you bridge those two passions to come up with story ideas? I want to question the idea that math is pure logic and writing is pure creativity. I mean, certainly those are components, but math is actually extremely creative. The kind of math that I was doing was uh, more on the pure math side, where you create theorems. And literally, you are building structures out of ideas in that kind of mathematics. You start with the axioms, and then you you investigate where they lead and what the ramifications are. It's kind of like world building, but in a very abstract sense. And writing also has logic to it when you look at 
things like the structure of a story or, you know, the three-act structure or the hero's journey or what a character arc looks like. Writing has patterns and mathematics is about patterns. So they actually do end up having uh, similarities in how you approach them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, my math never really uh, made it all that far past like calculus, so I didn't quite get into that purely theoretical side of creating things, but I can definitely see how there would be kind of limitless opportunity to explore there. So I guess when you're coming up with stories, is there just kind of like a spark where there's this mathematic concept? And you're like, well, I wonder how this could be applied to something else, or uh, does it just randomly come on you? I think for a lot of stories, for me... I will have one idea and that's not enough to start the story. It has to be kind of crossbred with a completely different idea from a different direction. And that's what, that's what the spark is for me. These two disparate things coming together and how to reconcile them and bring them into the same world. Right. That's something uh, when I started paying more attention to uh, writing craft and speaking with more authors is uh, an idea is not the same as a story. So stories have multiple ideas and then you also have to like weave them together somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was looking through uh, your past stories, I saw that you actually have like over 70 short stories published in the last 20 years. Um, at least just from what I can find on your website. So how did you get started with short fiction? I started writing short stories for my sister. Like literally I would take typewriter paper and fold it in half and staple it and write a story for my sister. That was really where it started. <laughs> but I started submitting to magazines in sixth grade, which was a terrible idea because the stories I was writing back then were really, really awful stories. But it was good practice, I guess. Like I learned about standard manuscript format. I learned about how to address a cover letter. Um, I learned to grow kind of a thick skin about rejection slips. So it was good practice for uh, just the what it's like to be a working writer, I guess. I sold my first story uh, freshman year of college, and I had actually sent it out at the end of 12th grade and from South Korea where I was living at the time and the acceptance letter went back to my parents and then they had to send it for, they had to forward it to me in college in New York state. It was, it was kind of funny. Oh, wow. But that's, that's really impressive though, to sell a story that I guess you wrote and submitted when you were still uh, not even in college yet. I think what I learned from starting so young was that it's really about persistence I know I've had friends who have been trying to sell stories and it can be kind of grinding and miserable when you get that rejection slip again. But I mean, I got, went through so many rejection slips, even after I made my first sale, I didn't always sell the later stories that I wrote. Um, they would make the rounds and th there would be more rejection slips. And then once in a while, someone would accept it. Like you just have to keep trying and keep learning. The only difference between an, unpublished writer and a published writer is is really persistence and experience as long as you keep trying and working harder and don't give up i believe that most people will eventually get there and it really does seem that like a lot of writers that appear to be these sort of like magnificent overnight successes uh there's actually like decades or at least years or months of really hard grueling work behind it where they are getting a lot of those rejections 
Yeah. I think even with writers who uh, succeed very early on, they have some kind of track record or practice writing, even if they're not necessarily sending those stories out. So yeah, you, you have to learn to write somewhere. And then so from short stories, how did you transition from writing short fiction onto longer form like novels? I wrote my first novel in middle school. It was terrible. No copies exist anymore. Um, (laughs) I wrote another novel in high school, also terrible. No copies exist anymore. Uh, Really, uh, what I found out was that I... It's easier to practice writing a short story simply because it's shorter. You can you can write you know numerous short stories in the time it takes you to finish a single novel, and so it's easier to kind of um, pick up mastery of the basics of the form. And there are things about writing a novel that you can't learn from writing a short story, like how do you handle deeper characterization? How do you handle a big character arc? How do you handle multiple plot strands? So there were definitely a lot of stumbling blocks as I tried to figure out how to write novels. Uh, But I did find that with persistence, I eventually got better at it. And also, to be quite frank, novels pay better than short stories. Yes, I, uh, I can definitely imagine that. And so I believe uh, in addition to short stories and novels and all of that, you also write some poetry. So I was wondering, how did you get into that? I got into poetry because I fell in love with it, really. And embarrassingly, the poetry that I remember from my childhood is like, did you ever read the Dragonlance books? I read a few of them. I have definitely not read all of them. The Dragonlance books had poetry in them, and not all of the poetry was good, but I was a super fan of the series, so the poetry associated with the books was just something that I really got into. And then I started reading, you know, Poe, Sylvia Plath, um, I don't know, eventually I found my way to Audre Lorde, some, some of Author Whaley's translations of Chinese poems. I used to sit in my high school library and read poetry off the shelves because it really forces you to pay attention to word choice on a very fine level. Like when you have a 200,000 word gigantic doorstopper novel, each word is proportionally less, like it's a tiny part of that novel. But if you have a haiku, a single word counts for so much more. It has just that much more weight. And so I found that studying poetry and um, trying to write frequently very bad poetry of my own really (laughs) helped me learn how to fine-tune my appreciation of wordcraft. Yeah, I can imagine that definitely uh, would apply towards writing longer-form prose as well. I also want to add that it, you know, it's not all people like poetry, but it doesn't have to be poetry per se. Like you could study song lyrics. There are some really good song lyrics out there. Or uh, I, I can't listen to all rap because I get headaches from loud music. But there is some rap that has extremely clever, beautiful wordplay. And so there are just ways of studying wordcraft that don't have to be literally poetry. Um, And then on a slightly different note, I see that uh, you've been fairly productive and created quite a few interactive games this year. So what do you find appealing about creating games? 
I think it's really the interactivity that makes it for me. So when you read a story, it's not completely passive because you're interpreting what's on the page, but at the same time, you're being carried along the author's plot and their characters in an interactive game, like a twine game or an inform game, or even some of the, you know, some of the video games that have branching storylines, you get to interact with the storyline and make decisions. And that changes the dynamic between the author and the audience. There is this one interactive game, I think called Changeling. And it was an extremely powerful, but extremely disturbing experience because you were put in the shoes of this viewpoint character who was mentally disturbed. They thought that their baby was a was an evil changeling. And so at one point in the game, you have the option of killing the baby. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to type kill baby into the command line. I can read books about babies being killed. And I mean, it's horrible, but it's not the same as taking action myself to move the story in that direction. Yeah, that's fascinating. I really don't have a lot of experience, to be honest, with uh, interactive games like that, but they seem fascinating. And I should add that, you know, you can generate powerful emotional experiences and they don't have to be horrible experiences. They don't have to be about killing babies. There's this one game by Adam Cadre called um, Photopia. And there's this beautiful moment where you discover that your character can um, perform an act of magic. And it's 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 really sense of wonder in one of the purest forms. So, you know, it depends on how you use that power with the audience. Right. That sounds really interesting. Actually, I'll have to check out Photopia. Well, uh, we've been talking for a while now and we have yet to get to your latest work. So Phoenix Extravagant, do you have a pitch for us? I do. It's a book about a non-binary artist teaming up with a pacifist mecha dragon against an evil empire. Yeah, that that is just such a fascinating pitch. I have to say that has so many things that I don't frequently see in fantasy and all of them together is just wow. I had fun with it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, when I was reading the story, one of the things that definitely stood out to me up front was uh, it's kind of a fantasy analog for Japan occupying Korea. So why did you make the choice to set the story in that world? You might be interested to know that my rough draft was not set in Japan occupying Korea. Really? I wrote 40,000 words, like half the novel, in the first draft, and it was set in fake Renaissance Europe, and it was not working. And so after several months of work, um, I made the hard decision to throw out those 40,000 words and start from scratch. And I said, you know, this needs to be a setting that I feel a personal connection with. And obviously, I wasn't alive in Korea during that time period. That was 1910 to 1945. But my parents would tell me stories about what that time period was like for uh, their parents. And it has certainly shaped the way Korea feels about Japan. I learned a lot of things reading about the Japanese occupations, specifically with regards to art. The Japanese actually did destroy Korean artworks and Oh, sorry about that. 
one of the things they did in landscape architecture, uh, there's sort of a Korean belief in feng shui that is very similar to Chinese feng shui. We actually stole it from the Chinese. And the Japanese came in and they re-landscaped the gardens to, to interrupt the feng shui of Korean gardens. There were, there were just all sorts of things like that. Wow. Yeah, I, I was unaware of that, but uh, that doesn't really surprise me all that much. Uh, I guess one of the messages that seems very powerful in your story is sort of the destructive power of colonization and particularly how that can uh, play out on uh, the culture and the art of the occupied country. One of the reasons I wanted to focus on the cultural impact is that it's so easy to think of colonialism in hmm, more physical terms, more military terms. And I really wanted to look at the destructive impact on culture and society, things like Koreans not being able to use their own names or having to learn Japanese language. Um, my mother's father, my grandfather, actually was a collaborator. He went to university in Japan and he learned uh, calligraphy from the Japanese and he was fluent in Japanese. So it's family history like that that I thought about when I was writing this book. Yeah, and uh, you can definitely see that influence in... Uh, I, I have not heard this spoken out loud. Is uh, the main character Jebby? Is that how you say the name? Yeah. Jebby, okay. Yeah, you can definitely see the parallels with that in Jebby's story. But also, so I was wondering with the fact that you do draw as well, so how did your artistic background influence the story and then also Jebby, the main character? I chose Jebby to be a painter specifically instead of um, a different kind of artist because I'm a watercolorist and I work in ink. My style is Western, so I'm not familiar with uh, Korean or Far Eastern painting techniques. But I decided that it would be easier to write about a painter because that's something I know a little bit about. I think most people who know about Korean art are most familiar with uh, pottery. Korea was very well known for its pottery, but I don't know anything about pottery or clay working. And I want it. Remember, I already had to throw out 40,000 words, so I was under a bit of a time crunch. Uh, one thing that did uh, influence me in creating the magic system with the magical paints was that the shortage of paint pigments came from my experience with a watercolor pigment called PO49, uh, quinacridone gold. And this this paint pigment physically ran out. Like they, they manufactured a quantity of it. They stopped manufacturing it for various reasons. And then it ran out. It's, I think you might be able to get it like on eBay if you're lucky and you're willing to pay $200 for like a pan of paint. But wow. back, back when I was, you know, playing around with my Crayola markers, I never thought that you could run out of a color. But the thing is, paint is a physical material. You know, you have to have the chemicals or whatever in order to be able to make that paint. And no physical material is infinite. It's not like digital art where, you know, if you can pick it on a color picker on in Photoshop, you can paint as much of it as you want. If you use up all of a physical paint, it's gone. Right. You know, that's honestly not something I'd ever considered before, but it's hard to not think about that now. Like, it makes a lot of sense. 
And then speaking of art also, like I absolutely love the cover art for Phoenix Extravagant. And in addition to just being gorgeous, I love how like the vivid red and blue seems like it might be intended to be symbolic of South Korea's flag. I think that was what the artist would, I mean, you would have to, uh, to ask the artists themselves, but yeah, um, I was thinking of the South Korean flag with the red and blue uh, tegukki. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that uh, South Korean flag is even the inspiration for, uh, is it Hwagugin flag? Is that how you say that? Hwagugin, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, I butchered that. No, that's okay. I mean, I didn't put in a pronunciation guide. <laughs> Yeah, well, so another thing I was wondering about is with so much of this story being centered around that visual art medium and spectacular visuals like a giant magic mecha dragon, uh, I was kind of surprised to learn that you have aphantasia. So as a reader with aphantasia myself, I thought you conveyed the emotional aspects of these very well, but I can imagine the actual visuals can't have been all that easy to get across. Uh, so I guess my question is, how did you approach conveying those visuals to readers when you can't necessarily see them yourself? When I was writing this book, I would always have a stack of books on Korean art history or um, Korean culture next to my desk. And if I got stuck, I just opened the book and looked at the pictures. And that really helped um, get me through because... I can't visualize things, but I do see. So, you know, if I have a picture in front of me, that does help me describe what's going on. For the Mecha Dragon, I would do watch anime, and I know anime is Japanese, but that was my intro- that was my big introduction to animation. <laughs> so, that was what I had in mind when I came up with the Mecha Dragon. I also have beta readers who are more visually oriented and they would help me out by saying, hey, Yoon-ha, you haven't really described what's going on or you only spent two sentences describing the dragon and the dragon is a big deal. You should spend more time on that description. <laughs> yeah, the dragon is definitely a big deal in the story. And I, I think that's great that uh, Japanese anime was sort of an influence for that, given uh, the sort of fantasy version of Japan that is the colonizing force in the book. And then so another major theme in Phoenix Extravagant is just the importance of culture and art. Uh, so with today's world being what it is, what do you feel is the importance of art, whether it's visual, written, musical, or otherwise? I think for me, art is about expression. And because human expression covers the entire gamut of emotions and experiences, it really depends on, it's in the eye of the beholder. Some people write or paint because they have a message to convey. And other people do it because they want to provide escapism or they just want to have fun with an idea. And I personally don't think that one is better than the other. I think that there's room in art for all of these different approaches, that it's, that it's healthy to have a kaleidoscope of different approaches to art. Because every reader or every viewer has something different that they need. I'm reminded of, um, do you know what ball-jointed dolls are? Uh, I do not. 
they're sort they're sort of a fancy, expensive, collectible doll, and there have been uh, arguments in the community about modding the dolls to represent characters who are disabled or fat or you know not conventionally visually appealing. And I remember one really interesting post from a woman who was she was a nurse. And she spent her days working with people who were burn victims or otherwise, you know, extremely, extremely disfigured because of medical reasons. And she said, I do this in my real job. This is the work that I do. I need an escape. And so all her dolls were extremely beautiful, extremely, you know, conventionally beautiful because she needed to have an escape from the very important real work she was doing. And I'm like, I can't, I know that it's important to have representation of different body types of different types of beauty. But when I think about that woman's story, it's like everybody needs something different and there has to be art for everybody's different needs. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so uh, I know readers will all take away something different from your story, but if you could choose one thing from Phoenix Extravagant for readers to take away from your story, what do you hope that is? Um, I would hope that they would think about, gosh, I would hope that they would think about what it costs us when culture is destroyed and not necessarily specifically Korean culture. That's the kind that's in the book, but just culture in general. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think uh, these days more and more, I think that's an important takeaway that readers can have. Well, uh, looking forward, uh, is there anything that you're working on currently that you can tell us about? Sure. I'm working on the sequel to Dragon Pearl, which was my middle grade uh, Korean mythology space opera. Uh, this one is about a non-binary tiger spirit who find themselves in trouble because the ship they're on gets hijacked. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. So that's with the Rick Riordan Presents brand, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, that's, that's really cool. That's actually not a brand that I realized existed until earlier this year. Uh, how did you get involved with that? Did you apply or did they approach you? Uh, my agent at the time, Jennifer Jackson, got wind of the project and she was like, Yoon-ha, you're Korean. Could you write a Korean kids book? And I said, well, I've never written a kids book before, but I can sure try. Um, so I wrote a proposal for it, a, a synopsis in three chapters. And I said to Jennifer, I bet nobody else is going to pitch Korean mythology space opera. And I was right. <laughs> it does seem like a fantastic combination that uh, we could probably use more of. It was a lot of fun. It's basically, you know, you have fox spirits and tiger spirits and goblins, but you also have spaceships. And I enjoy blowing up spaceships. So, <laughs> And so this is actually not your first space opera because you're probably very well known for your Machineries of Empire series. So how different was it, I guess, writing a space opera that was targeted at a middle grade audience rather than an adult one? Uh, the two big things, uh, one was sort of logistical. So when I write for an adult audience, 
there's no real convention on how long a chapter has to be, but I write 2,000 word days, so I naturally write 4,000 word chapters. And I asked my editor, Steph Lurie, how long a chapter should be for middle grade. And for some reason, they want chapters to be 3,000 words long. I think it's a good length for reading out loud to kids, like in a classroom or at bedtime. And for whatever reason, I found it so difficult to adapt to writing chapters that were 3,000 words and now not 4,000 words. Like I would get to the 2,000 word point and go, oh, whoops, I only have 1,000 words to wrap up this chapter and have to squeeze in everything. So the pacing was a little uh, difficult at first. The other obvious thing was that uh, Machineries of Empire has a lot of cuss words, <laughs> and I could not use any cuss words in the middle grade book because uh, middle grade in publishing is defined as ages 8 through 12. And, of course, the kids don't care. The kids are fine with cuss words generally, but, you know, they're, they're not the ones with the credit cards. It's the teachers and the parents and the librarians, so you have to be careful what you put in there. I got into so much trouble because I had sort of a, a homage to the Moss Eisley Cantina from Star Wars. I had a gambling den, and my editor was like, oh, gosh, you can only put in gambling if you make it super crystal clear that gambling is bad and evil. And I just <laughs> – it just blew my mind that this was such a big deal. Yeah, especially because thinking back on some of the middle grade stories that I grew up reading, it's not like everything is sunshine and rainbows and, like, very clear-cut difference between good and evil. I mean, probably for sure more so than adult fiction, but uh, there's still a lot of room for complexity. Mm -hmm. I uh, believe you said that you might be shifting your focus more towards that middle grade route in the future. Uh, is that the case? Probably. Yeah. Uh, do you mind talking about why that is? Uh, it's pretty simple. It's money. So Middle grade generally pays better than uh, science fiction and fantasy. Science fiction and fantasy is a little bit niche. And I'm currently with my machineries books were published through a smaller publisher in the UK, Solaris, which is under Rebellion. Whereas Disney Hyperion is, what can we say? The mouse has deep pockets and is willing to pay people. <laughs> If it were a matter of just writing what I love, I would love to write more adult science fiction and fantasy, but I have a daughter who is in high school, and she's going to have to go to college, and the bills have to get paid. Yeah, I think that is a very time-honored and respectable reason to uh, shift your focus in writing. Well, I always like to ask, are there any books you've enjoyed lately that you can recommend? Uh, I have two for you. One is Tamsin Muir's, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm probably not, Gideon the Ninth, which is extremely gory, gonzo, weird, crazy, lesbian necromancers in space. You'll probably know within the first chapter if it's for you or not. I love it to pieces. The other book that I read recently and absolutely adored was Kate Elliott's space opera, Unconquerable Son, which is gender-bent Alexander the Great in space. Yeah, I have actually read both of those books, and I adore them to pieces. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't put them down. It was wonderful. Yeah, and uh, Gideon the Ninth, I'll actually, I very, very rarely reread books, uh, but I'm going to be going through it on audio this time around because I found a local book club that's meeting virtually during lockdown. So uh, oh, that's what they're discussing this month. 
Cool. Um, and then one way I always like to close out these episodes is just asking, what is one thing that you're excited about right now? So this past summer, I took a five-day workshop on hand-drawn animation from the Center for Cartoon Studies, and it was it was super intensive. And also, I am really bad with a Wacom tablet, but I did my first walk cycle, which was very exciting. And I'm really looking forward to experimenting with little animation doodles. Oh, that that sounds so cool and super challenging. Yeah, no, animation is, uh, it's mathematically, uh, I almost did not finish my final project for the workshop because if I had not deleted one line, and you would think that one line would not make a difference, but when you're animating at 12 frames per second over three seconds, that's 36 drawings. So 36 lines. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it really, now when I look at a professional animation like TV or an animated feature, I'm aware of how much work goes into it. And I have so much respect for those artists. Yeah, especially like the 3D animation now. Like, I can't even wrap my head around how difficult that must be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Yoon, thank you so much for coming on the show to chat. This has been wonderful. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much. You can find Yoon Ha Lee on Twitter and Instagram as Deuce of Gears or at his website, yoonhalee.com. His art is available for purchase at deuceofgears.com and his music can be found at soundcloud.com slash deuceofgears. Phoenix Extravagant is a thoughtful look at colonization and revolution through the eyes of a pacifist artist. And if that isn't enough to sell you on it, there's also a giant mecha dragon powered by magical painting. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoy this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.